0: This morning we're going to continue in our Second Thessalonians uh, series, and we're going to be looking at the last part of Second Thessalonians chapter two. As you kind of think about in our, our world and you begin to look at our world, we can look and see lots of things as we've seen the past few weeks that we know are kind of upside down within our culture. And we talked about the fact that as followers of Christ, we need to expect God's promises to come true, that there's a comfort about Christ's return. But as we think about that comfort, we need to ask ourselves how we're living in the midst of that, how we're responding to the craziness of our own world. Do we get baited into divisions which don't matter? Do we get pulled into things that are not eternal? Is our focus here about being comfortable rather than being purposed? Does what gets your attention, are those things everlasting? Or are they things that are just niceties now? Ever had a junky car that just works well? It's not the prettiest thing, but it goes, right? Well, the truth is that we hang on to those cars because they get us to where we're going, right? And they don't cost much. I don't know about you guys, but I can remember the first time I had a car payment after having bought a car outright. It stinks, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you see the money going out, and you're like, well, here's a trade-off. I'm driving a, a car over here that looks a little better, but they both get me to the same place. And there comes a point where you come to that realization of like, really, who cares what it looks like, right? If it's working, if it's, if it's, if it's getting me where I need to go. Well, I think what happens sometimes in our faith is we lose sight of what it is that makes us go and what it is that gets us to where we're going. If we're truly serving God, the one that gets us there is Jesus. And that means that we do it his way. And so what we're going to see this morning is that with the Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging them to stand firm, to do it God's way, but not simply because God says, do it my way, but rather because there's certainty in it, that there is certainty in the gospel. In an age and a time where there's so much uncertainty, the message of hope in the gospel is one of certainty. And as believers, we need to live in that certainty, not living as if it might be true, not living as if we have all the time in the world, but living as if today is the very last day that we have on mission with Christ. So let's take a look at this small portion of Scripture, but a portion of Scripture which is deep. And it's grounded and rooted. And I want you to think, as we read through this scripture, how many times in this scripture the word is used either we or us or our. There's a community in this, in Jesus. So let's stand together as we read this passage. It's just a small section of scripture, verses 13 through 17, of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And this is what it says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Lord God, this morning, may we find hope in standing firm. May we find hope in the certainty of your gospel, knowing that as we stand firm that what will be seen is the message and hope of your grace. Knowing that as we stand firm, that we might receive the comfort that can only come from your grace. Father, thank you that for all those who put their faith in you, we can count you as our Lord Jesus Christ and we can count you as God our Father. May it be so this morning that we rejoice in knowing that we are a part of your family through faith. And may it be to us a joy to sit at the feet of your word and trust in it. Father, for those who have not responded to your grace, I pray this morning That they would see desperately the need for you. That they would cry out to you in faith. And today would be a day of transformation and entrance into your family. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. At the heart of this passage... Is the idea that the certainty of God's loving gospel enables us to stand firm in times of worry and spiritual confusion? The certainty of God's loving gospel enables us to stand firm in times of worry and spiritual confusion. Certainty. Gospel. Stand firm. That's what we're talking about this morning. The certainty of the gospel enables us to stand firm, to not be moved, to to not waver. Now, at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians 2, the purpose for our our text becomes clear. If you heard last week's sermon, uh, this passage will be a little bit familiar to you at the beginning of chapter 2. And it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Central to that particular portion of Scripture is the idea that Paul's encouraging them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And Paul goes on. He goes on and lays out then what is to be expected prior to Christ's return. And we looked at that last week. And he lays out the direct consequences of those who have chosen not to believe in Christ, leading to, in verse 12, as it's put, essentially their eternal condemnation, that apart from Jesus, on the day of Christ's return, if you have not believed in the truth of who Jesus is, if you have not put your faith in him, it will lead to your eternal destruction. That's what he's saying. It says that there will be one that comes, that moves forth in sin, that he will be the total embodiment of sin. That is the Antichrist. And that Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. Nothing remaining. It'll be that distinct, that clear. Well, Paul now turns his attention to the believers, not to simply those who have rejected the gospel. And he's exhorting them how to live in the power and the comfort of the gospel in the faith of the truth of Christ's return. And my question for us this morning is how are you living knowing that Jesus is coming back? What's your faith like? Is it a faith that's marked by the comfort of the world? What if God today told you to sell everything you owned, to live in a shanty shack, and to proclaim the gospel to three people for the remainder of your days? What if God said, You can have everything this world has to offer, but you will lose your soul? The question is, how are we choosing to live in light of Christ's return? One of the challenges that we have in American faith today is that we speak specifically about the repentance and salvation of Jesus. In the New Testament, those that were proclaiming the gospel spoke of repentance faith for salvation, and Christ's coming return. It was the completion of the gospel that they spoke of, this promised resurrection for those who believe, this continued eternal life. And the reason that Christ's return is important is because it places in us an urgency with the gospel. It places us an urgency in the way that we choose to walk with Christ that we might be a bride prepared. Isn't it funny that on the day that you get married, it's probably the best you'll ever look? Now, it's not true for everybody, but usually we're at our youngest. We've put hours upon hours and hours into this thing. Usually the guys don't, right? but the truth is is that from that day forward we're getting older and older our tents getting older and more worn out than ever before now the beauty of that is that love blinds us of those things the beauty of it is life, love actually can can make our spouse look even better But physically, our body is actually moving towards a state of decay as we get older. We're working towards the tent being broken, not whole. What God wants is a bride who is prepared for him. And the question is, am I resting in Christ? Am I walking with Christ? Am I standing firm in Christ, ready for his return? heard of a pastor once say that he watched his father die and as he watched his father die he had served his church for 50 years and on his deathbed he kept saying just one more soul just one more soul give me one more soul and for us we might say ah oh, that's noble that's great but for this pastor one of the things that he shared was He never saw his dad really in peace in that moment. That he felt as if his dad was living with a sense of regret. That he had not done his best for the kingdom of God. And I wonder how many of us pursue the Lord, but we know in the heart of our hearts that we're not really truly sold out for him. That there's more that God wants to do with us But we're chasing the pursuits of this world rather than the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom. This is kind of what Paul is driving home with the Thessalonians. He's saying, look, things are going to get worse. But you have confidence because Christ will defeat those Those ones who are evil, Christ will defeat the Antichrist. In the end, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. But he wants to encourage them to live in the power and comfort of the gospel in the face of the truth of Christ's return. And by comfort, he doesn't mean apathy. He doesn't mean laziness. He means freeing peace. So this brings us to the text today in verse 13, which begins, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. This word is agape, and it is the love of God that moves us forward, that spurs us forward in our relationship with him. When somebody loves you well, you want to return that love. I think one of the hardest things about growing up in the church is hearing about God's love. For those who are outside of the church when they come to Jesus, I think they have an understanding of being loved in a way that they've never been loved before. And I'll be honest with you, there are days that I would love that. Because I know for me, I never truly understood God's love in that way. God's love was always there. I never understood to be apart from it. I begin to pray that God would give me an understanding of that love, and He does. But we need to not grow cold to the love that Jesus provides, and so He tells him here, "Stand firm. Stand firm." In verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So, how do we live a life in light of the coming return? He's saying, Stand firm. Stand firm and hold to what we've taught you. So, how do we stand firm in the midst of trial, in the midst of worry, and even in the midst of spiritual confusion? When things pop up that we don't understand, we don't understand why God's doing what he's doing, it might even be that we don't understand a doctrine of God. Or in this case, it might be that somebody's deceiving them. False teachers come. We see this today with the things like prosperity gospel. Listen, when God speaks about us being prosperous, he's not talking about a material wealth. He's talking about an internal wealth that can only come from a person, that is, Jesus. But that wealth satisfies more than any eternal wealth will. I read an article this week about a woman that retired at 52. And the The article was simply titled This You Can Never Have Enough Money. And what had happened to her, she'd run across health issues. And so she had been retired for three years. She was 55 years of age. Her bills were so significant that she had to go to work. But nobody would hire her because she, for health conditions. And after another few months or several months of working through this, she found a part-time job that she could work at. And she spoke about having nothing left. And her simple words were, you can never have enough money. Because the wealth of this world is fleeting. True wealth is found in Christ, a peace and a comfort that only comes from him. And so he says here in verse 13 through 14, after saying that, brothers, beloved by the Lord, he says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So standing firm on the gospel first requires us to remember God has chosen and called us. God has chosen and called us. Now, the first word, first fruits here, essentially has a dual meaning. The first meaning refers to the beginning of time. God predestines them for salvation or us for salvation as Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 puts it. He says, Even as he he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, one of the things that happens with this idea of being chosen by God is the an arrogance that rises up. We see this, that election becomes a doctrine that becomes something to divide about. And it's not. Most often in the New Testament, when election is mentioned or the idea of predestination as it is in Romans 8... It's always in context to suffering. In this passage, it's the same. And there is a reason why. Because God wants you to know that in your suffering, you are not there by accident, but you have been appointed for that. That he has chosen you, and you are in that, in his comfort It was never to be an excuse where you didn't go and witness. And it was never to be an excuse where you said, I got this all figured out. It was to be a place where we landed in confidence in times of suffering, in times of worry, in times of anxiousness, in times of spiritual confusion, that we could know that we were Christ and Christ had appointed us for such a time as this. What a wonderful thing it is For those early Christians that were being burned at the stake. And those Christians today in China. And Arab nations that are dying in North Korea. Which has now become the most hostile nation towards Christians. What a wonderful thing it is to know that when I'm being persecuted for my faith. That God has chosen me. That I don't have to stand with doubt But I have tremendous freedom in knowing that I am here for God's glory and for his sake. When he says here that the Holy Spirit has sanctified, right? He says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This sanctification is not a sanctification that he's talking about where he makes us righteous, in our everyday living, that's not the kind of sanctification he's talking about here. He's saying positionally you are sanctified. You have been set apart for him and by him. First Thessalonians one, two, through five affirms this when he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Because we don't understand this sometimes, it's easy to say, I don't want to believe this. But God has actually used this and actually points to his predestination, his election of his children for the purpose of encouragement often in the face of suffering. John 6, 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father is the one that changes the hearts, the Spirit works in our hearts, allows us to see, opens our eyes to the truth, and we respond, salvation being a holy and only work of God. We have to wrestle with Romans 9.15, which says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I think sometimes in the New Testament we struggle with this idea, and yet we're very readily able to accept that God chose a people for himself, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We need to stop and look. And it doesn't mean that we understand it all. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with these truths and we certainly don't divide over this truth. But it is worthy to dive into it, to seek it, to understand it. Now, the second meaning here has to do with a purposed mission. The first is that you were chosen by God for salvation, set apart. And then the second piece of that is that they were given the first fruits because they were, had a purposed mission. So you and I have been set apart. The Thessalonians have been set apart, but we've also been set apart not just for salvation, but for a mission. The Thessalonian Christians were some of the early converts in Macedonia. They were responsible for bringing the gospel to that region. In the same way, we are responsible for bringing the gospel to those within our purview, those Who we work with, those who we go to school with, those in our neighborhoods. God's called us to bring the gospel there. Acts 17, 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you believe that God has put you here for mission work? Do you believe that God has placed you in the city that you are in, in the town that you are in, for a very specific purpose? That's why as Christians, when we choose to move, we don't get the freedom to just follow our whims and passions. We have to deal with the fact that God has placed you here for a very specific purpose. And that we need to honestly dive into the purpose, not based on what we want, but what God wants. Have you ever thought, those of you who are choosing to go to a college, that how you choose a college ought to also involve where God is planting you? That it ought to be a place where you've sought not only, this is the place I want to go, but that God Himself may have a purpose for you in a specific place or time? How about work? Where we work. Do we just shift work and jobs readily or do we see that our workplace is a mission field? These are the kinds of things that we need to deal with. This week I was in a school site meeting. and I was talking to a few teachers, and what I found out in this meeting was that Windsor School District is the lowest paid school district in Sonoma County. Danny probably already knows that. (laughs) I did not. But as I was talking to these teachers, One of the things that they shared was how grossly underpaid they were compared to other school districts in our county. And I looked at each one and I said, I would like to know how much we're talking. So one teacher looked at me and said, I was a Santa Rosa City School District and I came to Windsor and I took a $21,000 pay cut. The next one said, I was close to the same and I took a $20,000 pay cut. And then the administrator said... I'm being paid less than $30,000 less than a school district of 600 as opposed to, or a high school of 600 as opposed to a high school of almost 1,700. Now, not that those things matter, but they obviously saw a greater benefit in being where they were at and a willingness to sacrifice. And that's honorable. And if the world understands that, we too as believers need to understand that far above anybody else. That God has called us to live lives that are in Christ, that involve sacrifice. And in it, God will care for us. God will meet our needs. But we are on mission And so standing firm on the gospel means that we see ourselves as chosen by God with a mission that he's given us. It's easy if you don't hold to the mission to get off course. It's easy if at the end you don't see what's really there and you're just living life without the end in mind. And we need to understand that. Now, notice here, as we talk about this issue of election or of being chosen, there's human responsibility here. It tells us here in verse 13 and 14, that through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, now this is part of God's mystery, how being chosen and how human responsibility work together. As believers, we need to be careful that we don't come in and say, we've got this all figured out. It's worth taking time to dive into it. But this, again, should not be a dividing point for us, but rather a point where we work through this and we allow God to reveal in our hearts what he is doing and what he means by his predestination. It is clear that God predestines. But it is also clear that God has called us to believe and he's called us to repent and believe. And to just easily wipe away that mystery is to settle for less than what God desires. We have to reconcile and work through those divine tensions and not just cut them out because we don't like them. Warren Wiersbe gives this warning. He says it's dangerous to engage in idle speculation about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are taught in the Bible. We know that salvation is of the Lord and that lost sinners can never save themselves. We must admit that there are mysteries to our salvation, but we can rejoice that there are certainties on which we can rest. We must not use the doctrine of election to divide the church or disturb the weak, but to glorify God. He's spot on. We have to deal with those things together. So, what's the second way of standing firm in the gospel? The first is to remember that you've been chosen and called. The second is that it clings to God's word, both proclaimed and written. It clings to God's word, both proclaimed and written. And written. It says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So here's what's happening. When he says traditions, he's not talking about human traditions, he's not talking about the traditions that were taught in the day. What he's talking about is the traditions that the apostles spoke. So this is talking about the word of God being spoken by the apostles prior to the writing of these letters. And then the written letter itself, the epistle that we even speak of today. In Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the wrath of truth, excuse me, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. If we're going to stand firm, we have to cling to God's word. This word hold actually implies a strength. It's a strong holding is what it's called. It's, it's a clinging on to. It's a not letting go. We need to cling to the word of God. That means this, this idea that he continues to share of our, of us, of we, that yes, we need to be in the word individually, and yes, we need to be following the word individually, but it also means that corporately we are in the word of God. It is why Hebrew 10 tells us not to neglect the gathering, because it is in the gathering that we are strengthened by the proclamation of his word. It also means that when you gather with other believers, that your discipleship groups, those that you spend time in the Word with, that that is a grace of God given to you. Can I say this really honestly and bluntly? When when we study together, it's not a casual relationship, it's not one that I pick and choose that I get to show up whenever I want. If it is, we don't understand God's graces for our growth. The fellowship of the believer is a grace that God has given so that you come together and might grow. It's not something you attend, it's something that God has given you as part of His blessing and of His grace so that we might grow in Him. That's encouraging. Do you see your relationship and fellowship with other believers as a grace for your growth? Do you see your discipleship group as a means by which you get the opportunity to share in fellowship and be encouraged and built up through one another? Or do you see it as just a casual partnership that every once in a while, if I do my own thing, it's there? See, Paul had a deep sense of their community, of us, we, our. And I hope this drives us this morning to see that the relationship that God has given, the gathering that he's given here is a grace to us. That the fellowship of the saints is a grace to us. That the center on God's word is a grace to us. what it's not saying is we can't miss what it is saying is what's our heart attitude towards those things are we standing fast firm and are we holding clinging with all of our might and strength to the word of God not just individually but corporately One pastor put it this way, God works in this world through the truth of his word, and Satan opposes this truth by substituting his lies. Human nature is prone to believe a lie and resist the truth. Satan accomplishes his best work through people in so-called Christian institutions, churches, schools, etc., who do not believe God's truth. They have a form of godliness, but have never experienced the power of God's saving truth. If we're going to stand firm, we need to be unified in God's word with one another. Being strengthened in God's word with one another. Through the proclamation of his word and through his written word. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10 adds, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Cling to his truth. We can't stand firm unless we cling to his truth. Philippians 1, verses 27 and 28 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whoa. He's called us to let the manner of our life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then listen to what it says so that whether I come and see you or i am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Wow. Sound like a grace that God's given in his word? That actually standing firm, a vital portion of that is word-centered fellowship. What we're doing here now. What we do later in our weeks. It's a grace. Isn't it awesome to be encouraged with other believers? My prayer and my hope is that we would be encouraged by one another. That his word at work within each of our lives would encourage us. So the first thing is to remember that we're chosen and called by God. The second thing then is to stand firm. And the third thing then, that clinging to his word. And the third then is to prayerfully trust that the same grace which saves us is the same grace which changes us. The same grace which saves us is the same grace that changes us. David Guzik points out, in our intercession and petition, we do well to remember God's past faithfulness and present blessing. His faithfulness in the past is a promise of his faithfulness for the future. Notice what Paul does here. He prays, he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He points them first to the work that's already been completed. That the God of salvation through his grace, which has been made available by him through faith, is the same God who through faith will change your life. This week, a couple of us as guys were talking about the idea of fruit stapling. Have you guys heard that term before? Fruit stapling is the idea that when you look at spiritual fruits in a person's life, that a lot of times what happens is we try to put fruit on us rather than let fruit grow from us. So when the fruit of the spirits are self-control and joy or loving kindness, we try to manufacture it some way. Well, I got to have self control to show that the spirits within me. And so we try to staple that fruit onto us, but that fruit just falls away. Rather, it's submitting to God, trusting in His grace, living every day, submitting to Him, following Him, and watching God work as we abide in Him. That the fruit comes up naturally. Our faith is not one of works. Our faith is one of grace at work within us. And so as we submit to God through faith, as we seek Him, as we prayerfully trust that as we walk in obedience with Him that He will change us, we will see that transformation. And that transformation works out in works and in word. James 1, through 25 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man for who, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What he's saying is this. We submit to Jesus. We submit through faith. We walk in obedience through faith. And God changes our hearts. If we have no confidence that Christ is in us, we will not stand firm. It's only when we see Christ at work within us that we stand firm. And when Christ is at work within us, then our lives are testifying to the truth of who He is. I want us to honestly ask ourselves, Are we talkers or doers? Ask yourself that. Do you spend more time talking about what God should do or shouldn't do, or what the world should be doing or not doing? Or do you spend more time pursuing Jesus and walking with Him, abiding in Him? And there's a reason that He puts the works here before the Word. Because too often, we speak about godly things that we have no desire in our own lives to apply. What he's saying here is, listen, if you're going to stand firm, walk in it. Walk in it. You will become confident in it. You'll be confident of his presence. Let him work. And then he says the word. Now, it does not mean that we shouldn't share our faith because we don't feel like we're walking as righteously as we should. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, yes, bring the gospel, share with word, share with deed. But here's the thing. If you want to stand firm, you're going to know the confidence of the Lord and experience the confidence of the Lord at work and the confidence of your salvation as you walk with him. And when you walk with him and you see the reality of his work in your life, you will want to testify to everyone of his power and of his grace. When we see God do stuff inside of us and we know how dirty we are, right? We know what goes through our minds and our hearts. When we see God beginning to change that, that's something to testify about. That's something to proclaim and we want to. Because then I can look at anyone else and I can say, yeah, I know. That felt powerless to me. That felt hopeless to me, and yet as I submitted to God, God changed my heart, renewed my heart, and guess what? I'm experiencing his victory, and you too can experience the same victory through repentance and faith. That means that the gospel has to have words. It can't be good news just by walking. Think about that for a minute. Think about what friendship evangelism does. It's as if I walked into the room, and I looked at you all, put my hands up, and said, I'm a work of God. Right? That's it. The good news has to have news attached to it. I don't walk into a place and just assume they know. The gospel was not simply meant to be lived out. It was meant to be lived out and proclaimed. And that's why words matter. That's why what we say matters. Does it edify? Does it build up? Does it point to Jesus? Charles Spurgeon puts it well when he said, some Christian people think that the word should be everything and work nothing, but the scriptures are not of their mind. These professors speak a great deal about what they will do, talk a great deal about what other people ought to do, and a great deal more about what others fail to do so they go on with word 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 and nothing else but word they do not get as far as work but the apostle put work first in this case a life changed in first Thessalonians 4 1 it says finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing that you do so more and more May we be a people who stand firm on the gospel. When faced with worry, anxiety, fear, trial. When faced with spiritual confusion. When we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand why God is doing it. Or we don't understand what this doctrine actually means. And how it looks and works within his grace. Rather than running. Rather than finding it in our own strength, may we stand firm in his gospel. And may we stand firm in expectation that Christ Christ will return and restore all things for those who have repented and believed on Jesus Christ. May this morning give us hope. And may this morning give us joy, knowing that Christ will return And that as we stand firm, we will be ready to receive the Bridegroom, Jesus, without regret. May we live with the urgency today in his grace and his hope and his truth. Let's pray. Father, your word has said it. Your word has called us to be a people who stand firm. So may that be our simple prayer this morning that you would enable us to stand firm in the power of your gospel. May we see that you have appointed us for salvation to be your missionaries to a world who needs to know the gospel. May we remember that you are surprised by nothing, God, may we cling to your word with reckless abandon and fervor. And God, may we prayerfully seek you and trust you knowing that the salvation that saves, the grace that saves, is the same grace that changes us. May we live as a people who stand firm in faith. Go before us today, Lord, in your power and in your favor. And we ask this in your name.